Hi, I'm Dave Isay, founder of StoryCorps. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dignity Memorial. Did you know that a prepaid funeral plan is one of the greatest gifts you can give your family? Plan your life celebration in advance to protect your loved ones. For additional information, visit DignityMemorial.com. It's 2005. At a public radio conference, everyone in the industry is there. StoryCorps founder Dave Isay is the keynote speaker, and he has a big announcement to make. Dave gets on stage and tells the audience that StoryCorps is going national. We're partnering with public radio stations around the country to send mobile recording booths out to do interviews. Then Dave adds another announcement for good measure. He says, moving forward, StoryCorps will be on the radio every Friday on NPR's Morning Edition. Everyone in the audience began applauding enthusiastically, except for one person, the person who was running that show. There were no words. I was just like, what? That's Ellen McDonnell, who was the head of Morning Edition for many years. Dave had been pushing for a spot on the show for a while, and Ellen's feedback was always the same. Morning Edition is a national news program. StoryCorps is just to New York. Yeah, so she told him, let me know when StoryCorps starts recording nationally. And then we'll discuss it. I went up to him later and said, Dave, like, could we have talked about this? He said, oh, no, 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 we did. We definitely talked about it. We definitely, you know, he may have had conversations in his head with me, but we never had the conversation where I said, yes, um, we will do this weekly. That's a big, big commitment to say you're going to give a very coveted weekly slot on morning edition. So I certainly could have pulled it back. I could have said, forget it. I don't care. We're not doing it. But You know, 20 years later, I'm thrilled we did it. Fridays are special because of StoryCorps. With the terrible news surrounding us every day, we need that human connection. And in many ways, it's the rainbow we all need. It's a special moment. The launch of the mobile tour is a very special moment in StoryCorps' 20-year history. It's when StoryCorps began to grow exponentially, reaching into every corner of America. To date, our mobile booths have recorded in more than 270 different cities and towns, collecting more than 27,000 interviews. But in this episode, we're focusing on that very first year of the tour. You'll hear some of those stories. And about life on the road from the StoryCorps staff who went along for the ride. So Dave Isay came out to visit us when we were in St. Louis. So it was about a month in. And I remember he took us out to dinner and like right away turned to us and said, so you're, you're out on the road and you're recording all these stories. You're doing this thing that no one's ever done before. So I just want to know, what have you learned about humanity? <laughs> no pressure or anything. I'm Michael Garofalo. And I'm Jasmine Morris. From NPR, this is StoryCorps Then and Now, celebrating 20 years of StoryCorps. Now, when StoryCorps hit the road, we did it in style. That's right. We took two Airstream trailers, these iconic gleaming aluminum campers, gutted them, and built recording studios inside. We launched the tour in front of the Library of Congress in May 2005. After that, one booth went west, the other east. One of the early stops was Sarasota, Florida where cousins Sherry Johnson and James Ransom stepped into the trailer for a conversation. They shared memories of growing up in Bradenton, Florida, and specifically of their larger-than-life Sunday school teacher. Let's talk about Mr. Lizzie Devine. Lizzie Devine. 
She was the only person I knew that had more power than my grandmother. She wasn't a mean person. She was stern. Stern, yes. Very and you stern. know, when she said something, she meant exactly what she said. Right. The only thing that would keep you from going to Sunday school, you had to have one foot on banana peel and other than the grade. Absolutely. That's the only There's thing. There's no, no excuse. You had to go. Had to go. One of the things that you prayed for when you were in Mrs. Devine's class was, Lord, please let me get old enough to get out of this class. <laughs> she did the catechism. Who made you? God. Where is God? Everywhere. <laughs> and we say, oh, Lord, have mercy, please. <laughs> this Miss Divine would come in on Sunday mornings to take us to Sunday school. And, and, and when I saw her come, Sherry, I thought the leaves would be blowing out the trees and the sky would go black and the clouds would come in. And she'd come in the house one morning and say, good morning, children. And everybody, my mother on down, said, good morning, Miss Divine. And she says, it's time to go to Sunday school this morning, children. I said, Mr. Vine, I can't go to Sunday school today. She said, no. I said, no, ma'am. She says, why not? I said, my mother didn't bring enough clothes for me to go to Sunday school this morning. She said, oh, no. What kind of clothes do you have? I said, all I have, Mr. Vine, are my pajamas and my tennis shoes. She said, well, that's okay, honey. Put your tennis shoes on. We go to Sunday school. I looked at my mother, and she looked away, Sherry. Mr. Vine made me walk two blocks in my pajamas and my tennis shoes. I had to sit in church with my friends. I'm going to tell you, Sherry, I'll, I'll never lie again. Ms. <laughs> Devine was always there to take care of us. Right. But when Ms. Devine braided your hair, your eyes went up like this. <laughs> you had to sleep on soft pillows because, boy, she had it tight. Mm-mm-mm. And Ms. Devine had mango trees all over her yard. But Ms. Devine... Never brought you a mango until it was rotten. <laughs> it would smell like liquor. <laughs> That's when she brought you a mango. <laughs> but you know what? That's the kind of stuff that we got growing up. And, and, and I'll never forget that. That's James Ransom and Sherry Johnson in Sarasota, Florida. Sherry died in 2017, and James is now a StoryCorps board member. He recently gave the toast at our 20th anniversary gala. In preparing for this episode, we realized one of the stories that doesn't really get told is what it's like to be out on the road collecting these interviews. Yeah, you've heard us refer to StoryCorps facilitators, but unless you've done a StoryCorps interview yourself, you might not understand what that job is. These are the people who welcome participants into the booth, engineer all the recordings, make sure everything sounds good, and also listen. They're there to jump in and ask questions, basically be the ear of future generations who may listen back to this. I always call it the best job in the world, especially the mobile tour facilitators. They go out in pairs for months at a time to record stories in the airstreams, spending weeks in each community they visit, just absorbing the wisdom of all the people they meet. People often assume that we slept in the recording booth because, it's, you know, it's an airstream trailer that, like, um, you know, people do use as campers. <laughs> That's Nick Yulman, one of the very first mobile facilitators. And no, they don't sleep in the booth. 
it's really kind of one of the best ways to travel that I can imagine that you not only go to a place and, you know, obviously get to see what's there and learn about its history, but like to actually directly hear about people's lives there. And it's kind of the thing that I often would like to be able to do, like to go up to a stranger and just like ask somebody like any kind of any question you want. Nick spent four months on tour that first year, and we recently asked him what that was like. It was a beautiful routine. You'd wake up and you'd go to the booth and you'd get the Airstream ready to greet people and to record. And then there'd be six interviews a day. So every hour, a new group of people would come. Nick's first stop was Chicago, where the booth was parked outside the Field Museum. I think we worked six days and then had a day off and then five days and two days off. It was pretty all-consuming. So certainly was tired. But part of what was so exciting about doing this work was not just like you know, we're making these recordings and we'll produce radio from it and people will hear it now, but also what the impact will be a hundred years from now if somebody can find this recording and, and hear, hear those voices. On the way out of town to their next stop, Nick and two other facilitators, Kayvon Baramian and Ronnie Shankar, did something that's only happened once. They took the booth to someone's house. And not just anyone. Someone with a special connection to StoryCorps. As we were leaving Chicago, we made a special stop at Studs Terkel's house. For how large he loomed in, in our imaginations, he was not a large man physically. And, you know, he was walking with a cane and, and you know, we kind of helped him get up into the booth and get him situated. No, no, but I can't tell. It sounds My seasoned. hearing aids on the blink. Eyesight is blurry. Mm-hmm. Aside from that, pretty good. You look good. So here we are. You, you go ahead. He'd recently just had heart surgery. But as soon as we started recording, he just became incredibly animated, um, just this kind of light in his eyes. And technically, you could say we interviewed him, but I think we only got in maybe two or three questions. What has happened to the human voice? Vox humana. Hollering, shouting, quiet, talking, buzz. I was leaving the airport. This is in Atlanta. You know, you, you leave the gate, you take a train, that took you to concourse of your choice. And I get into this train, dead silence, a few people seated, all standing. Up above you hear a voice that once was a human voice, but no longer. Now it talks like a machine. Concourse 1, Fort Worth, Dallas, Lubbock, that kind of voice. Just then the doors are about to close, nomadic doors, when a young couple rush in and push open the doors and get in. Without missing a beat, that voice above says, because of late entry, we delayed 30 seconds. The people looked at that couple, as if that couple had just committed mass murder, you know. And the couple is shrinking like this, you know. And I'm known for my talking. I'm, I'm Gabby. And so I say, George Orwell, your time has come and gone. I expect a laugh. Dead silence. And now they look at me, and I'm with the couple, the three of us, at the Hill of Calvary on Good Friday. And then I say, my God, where's the human voice? And just then there's a little baby, maybe the baby's about a year old or something. And I say, sir or madam, to the baby, what is your opinion of the human species? Well, what does a baby do? And the baby starts giggling. I say, thank God sound of a human voice. 
because StoryCorps is a nonprofit, we also ask people if they would be interested in you know, making a donation to help support the project. I remember uh, at the end of the interview, he, he says something like, so can I, can I give you some money? Is this where I can give you a donation? And I think we sort of begged off and said, oh, no, Suds, it's okay. It's such an honor to get to meet you and to record you. But then what he wound up doing was giving us a $5 bill, which he also autographed as his donation for StoryCorps. You know, I, I did get a sense he felt you know, somewhat honored that like this was a whole project that in some ways was building on what he had done. And to be able to go to his house and record him was an incredible honor. After that interview, Nick and his co-facilitator Ronnie and the booth headed south. We'll go with them after the break. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Subaru. Join Subaru in celebrating their fifth annual National Make-A-Dogs Day on October 22nd, a day to do something special for all dogs. This day, combined with the Subaru Love Pets Initiative, has helped many shelter animals find loving homes, including hard-to-adopt underdogs. Learn more at Subaru.com slash Make-A-Dogs-Day. Welcome back. A big part of the facilitator's job is to bear witness. And sometimes that means they find themselves sitting a few feet from people who lived through history. It's one of the incredible things about the archive we've built. All the first-hand accounts of things you usually only read about in books. Here's Nick. One of the stops I was in was Memphis, Tennessee. And we were parked just a few blocks away from the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King was killed. Um, and... One of the interviews that I got to facilitate was with Bessie and Taylor Rogers, who came in to talk about their recollection of Martin Luther King's final speech. I mean, it was wall to wall with people. And it was storming and raining. He preached, and he said that all. I've been to the mountaintop. Oh, yeah. Because I've been to the mountaintop. And I looked over, and I've seen the promised land. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I might not get there with you. I may not get there with you. But we will get there. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And he was crying. Tears were rolling down his cheek. Preachers were crying, people were crying, and everybody was crying. And he really talked that night. I mean, he really, really talked. You could tell by the expression on his face and the feeling and, and the sound of his voice that he knew something was going to happen. He said, because uh, I'm not fearing any man. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Next day, he was killed. You know, it's kind of like you lost a part of your family. You just really can't describe it. He stopped everything. Put everything aside to come to Memphis to see about the people on the bottom of the ladder, the sanitation workers. After his death, we marched. Uh, you couldn't hear a sound. You couldn't hear nothing but leather against pavement. It was just some terrible days back then, but uh, 
with God's help, we came through. And it means something to know that you was a part of this. It is humbling to sit with somebody who has been, you know, a witness to history like that. And also, like, Bessie and Taylor Rogers are not famous civil rights leaders in the sense that you're going to read about them in every history book about that struggle. But, like, this is such a central and key moment in their lives. And to, to be able to the chance to record that, it was it's very important. And it wasn't just stories from 40 or 50 years ago. They were documenting key moments that were happening in real time. Yeah, this was 2005. And of course, that's the year that Hurricane Katrina devastated New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. Not long after the storm, StoryCorps took the booth down to Gulfport, Mississippi. And that last stop was actually something was not planned initially, but we wound up finding a way to kind of add it on because Hurricane Katrina happened like shortly after I started on the mobile tour. And... Um, it was sort of our first opportunity to bring the booth to a community that had been affected by it. Um, and this was just a few months after the hurricane. And so there was still so much destruction and people were coming in and, and just talking about really harrowing experiences. And we were staying at like a casino hotel that was right on the water there. You know, and then the, the casinos there are these offshore barges. The strip that we were on, some of the barges had blown inland and crushed buildings. So it was this just kind of apocalyptic setting. And to get there, we had to go through like a National Guard checkpoint and then get up in the morning and go to the booth and record stories. My name is uh, Douglas Paul DeSilvey. I'm a native of the Gulf Coast. The story I want to tell today is, is about my family. The three women in my family uh, have steered my life for the past 59 years to the man that I am today. And I hope and think that I am a pretty good fellow. When Douglas DeSilvey came in, you know, he came alone. So in that case, the facilitator would serve as the interviewer. And so, you know, I knew I was going to interview him and he was, he was very soft-spoken and it became clear why he was coming in alone. Um, and that's because I don't know that he had somebody who he could sit down and talk to about this or who could, he could do this interview with. Every time we had a hurricane, we would all go over to Nadine's home uh, we consider this just another uh, another storm. Since 77, when she built this house, we've been through every storm in it, um, not knowing what we uh, what we were in for. We were sitting on the bed, and I could hear glass breaking. And I uh, walked to the back of her bedroom, which was facing the bay, just to measure the water to see how high up it was. And in the back of the water, it just came up so fast, it was unbelievable. As I turned and told them to hold hands that we was going to have to get into the water, the roof came down on all of us. And my lungs started filling up with water, and I just kept asking Jesus not to let me go like this. I had to get my family out. I got out, and they didn't. I'm a big guy. I'm 268 pounds. And I exercise and stay healthy, and I just... I could not do a thing. It was just, it was just their time to go. Is the only way I can understand this. Uh, losing a family is—I uh, don't think there's any words for it. Kind of makes you wonder what life's all about. Um, many, many questions I have 
not received answers for yet. Um, I just don't know what I feel these days. I wake up and go to my office and do my job, and I'll come home. Um, I've got the house full of their belongings and that I don't know what to do about. You know, when as a as a father and a dad and a husband and everything, you always plan for the future of everybody, and it's just the opposite now. I have nobody to plan for or work on retirement for or save for buying a house or it's just me. You know, being able to sit down and ask questions and hold space and, and know that it's going to be an incredibly emotional interview. I think there were moments during that recording when we, we both were were crying and just had to pause a moment and just kind of take a deep breath and, and before we continued on. Um, definitely those those interviews in Gulfport um, have, have stuck with me and I think about I think about a lot of those people still. There's two facilitators who'd work together on the mobile tour at a time. It was incredible to be out on the road with just one other person and you're having this experience and so to have somebody to kind of go through that with you, to like process the things we'd heard. And like some nights we we would tell each other, oh, we had this incredible moment in the booth where these two people were like holding hands and crying. But also there were some nights where I, I think you'd just be so kind of emotionally drained that like talking was hard. Um, you felt like you had, you had already... You'd already spent all of the kind of resources you had to communicate or to actively listen to some to somebody um, because because it, it was just an intense day. We've talked before about how StoryCorps connects people. Well, this is another way that happens between facilitators who have shared the experience of being on tour together. At the end of a facilitator's time on the road, they often do their own interview together. Here's a little bit of Nick's conversation with his co-facilitator, Ronnie. I really want to. I want to thank you, Ronnie. I was just so blessed to like have you as a partner on the tour. Just like the level of curiosity that you bring to everything, and just like the empathy that you exude for just anybody you're interacting with is just. I learned a lot from being on the, the road with you and just knowing you too, and it's been really wonderful. Thank you, Nick. I feel the same <laughs> way. I think I told you on the road like how much I've learned from you just by watching you in action. I'm really gonna miss working with you, and I feel so blessed to have become part of like your everyday <laughs> interaction like I spend more time with you than with anyone else every, yeah, yeah I was thinking like we had every meal together for like 10 weeks <laughs> <I know. laughs> and I've never had that experience with any other person ever and thank you so much yeah. we'll leave you now with some closing thoughts from Nick about life on tour and what it meant to him by the end of, of four months, uh, you know, it was I was very tired. I mean, we, we worked hard, and um, it's unforgettable. I mean, there's I, I still things that I think about um, from that time, and, and the people I met, and the places that we went to, and I just think of it as one of the best times of my life. Um, I think it just kind of reset my mind in a lot of ways too. Um, just a different way of seeing the world, a different way of interacting with people. I think one of the key takeaways for me is like you never know what somebody's going to talk about. Like so when you're walking down the street and it's easy for us to get into the mode of kind of making quick assessments of people, but nothing 
dissolves that feeling faster than, you know, having this experience day in and day out of having somebody walk into the booth and just having your mind blown about, you know, what their life was or what they're talking about or the relationship they have with the person sitting across from them. Um, one of the clearest and I think most genuine ways you can show love to somebody is to just be curious about who they are, what they care about, what they've done, um, and being able to kind of sit and witness so many people doing this for family members and what it meant for them. Like, it's an incredible example in my own life and my own personal relationships. That's something that I try to bring to being a parent, too. It's like letting your kids know that you genuinely want to know what they're doing, how they feel about it, and, and like make sure that you're having these deeper conversations. Next week, how a listener's comment led one man home again. Is that Wes? No. no. Take the next right, then arrive at your destination on the right. Oh my gracious. This is West High School. This is extremely different. Look, there's black students walking, <laughs> coming to school. Amazing. <laughs> This episode was produced by Judd Esty Kendall with Max Young-Rice. Our technical director is Jared Floyd. Liz McCarty created the art for this episode. Special thanks to Ellen McDonald, Nick Yeoman, all the facilitators who have been on the road over the years, producer Katie Simon, and facilitator Nelson Simon. Find out how to record your own conversation at StoryCorps.org. You can go to one of our story booths, visit one of our mobile booths when they're in your area, use our app, or record remotely. I'm Jasmine Morris. And I'm Michael Garofalo. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.